What I personally like is this, that uh, it might change how we perceive human suffering, human adaptations of disorders. You know that we can't just treat the symptoms. That's like putting a bandage on. This is the It's Complicated podcast. I'm Reese Cox, and today on the show, we'll be peering into the vast and rapidly accelerating field of psychedelic sciences and what they could mean for the mental health field in the far or possibly even near future. But before we get into it, I'd first like to give a bit of history and background in order to establish some context on the matter. In the 1950s, there was a new and promising field of research into a class of drugs known as psychedelics. The findings from this time were greatly exciting and opened up new windows into what pharmaceuticals could be. Yet, the enthusiasm for these substances and their experiential properties leaked out of the institutional realm and into the general population, fueling the counterculture of the 1960s and 70s through figures such as Timothy Leary. Now, there has been more than enough media coverage and portrayal of the history of the psychedelic underground, and it is somewhat beside the point of this episode to discuss this history But it is important to note that the unregulated use of these substances from the 60s undoubtedly complicated the study of psychedelics in the decades to follow. That said, it should be pointed out that no alternative history is knowable, and what happened ultimately happened. The majority of psychedelic research was canceled in nearly every major institution by the end of the 60s. In 1971, Richard Nixon declared Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America, The war on drugs was about to begin, and in 76, Spring Grove State Hospital of Maryland, the last holdout of psychedelic research in the United States, which had been quietly plugging away in the background during the psychedelic revolution, was finally forced to close. It wasn't until sometime in the 1990s when research into psychedelics and accredited scientific institutions began again. And while this new beginning was rather quiet, the crest of the second wave has grown steadily thanks to more stringent research methods, incredibly tight federal regulations, and a generation of scientists dedicated to rescuing the trajectory of psychedelics from eternal illegality. We look towards a future where fully regulated and legal clinics might one day administer psychedelic treatments alongside regular therapy sessions for familiar psychic maladies such as chronic depression, substance abuse, or PTSD. Despite the illicit reputations of psilocybin, LSD, ketamine, or MDMA, In my opinion, the more compelling story to tell now is that all of these substances are under serious review and consideration and put through numerous and ongoing clinical trials at institutions such as UCLA or Johns Hopkins or Imperial College London, where they are being rigorously examined for the therapeutic and healing potentials. There is a constant outpouring of new publications about the research and possible directions of psychedelic therapies. For our contribution here today, I wanted to discuss a topic with a practicing therapist about the subject of how these new innovations and milestones in mental health and neuroscience through psychedelic research could someday, just maybe, change the very nature of how we think about the mental health field and the way we think about treatment. But now that I've got you on the edge of your seat, I'd first like to share with you a bit about It's Complicated. It's Complicated is web directory making it extra simple to find the right therapist. No matter what kind of therapy you're looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect with a practitioner. Pay us a visit online at complicated.life 
And if you like the content you get here on the podcast, you can find more interesting and insightful information on our blog at blog.complicated.life. In my research leading up to this episode, I couldn't help but wonder, if we see a future where psychedelic therapies become mainstream and widely available, how deeply and immediately could any change be felt within the larger mental health community and industry? After all, there has been a steady influx of new research showing promise for the potentials of these substances for treating PTSD, depression, addiction, mania, and so on, all of which are conditions and disorders faced by therapists on a regular basis. Even as I was editing this episode, I saw a new study published in a peer-reviewed journal about the potential for LSD and psilocybin and the treatment of substance abuse disorders. Ketamine is now approved by the FDA in the U.S. for medical use and treatment for depression, and MDMA is now in phase three clinical trials for treatment of PTSD. Now, the aforementioned therapist I'll be speaking to you here shortly is a Finnish-born, Berlin-based Gestalt therapist named Miko Karhalati. Miko has followed the growth of the field of psychedelic research over the last decade or so, attending numerous conventions and retreats along the way, and I wanted to speak to Miko to get a practitioner's perspective on what this might mean for him and his colleagues. Let's go to the interview. It's a good question and hard to predict exactly what will happen. But based on what we know right now, especially regarding the uh, nonprofit organization MAPS in the States, which has been the uh, advocate for uh, MDMA uh, for PTSD studies, they have visioned that there will be clinics uh, or centers uh, for psychedelic therapy with this kind of holistic approach. So there will be people who have been trained, um, you know, professionals, psychiatrists, psychotherapists, psychologists, social workers uh, who have then been trained by MAPS in their therapy training um, to do this uh, psychedelic therapy with different substances. So, for example, MDMA for PTSD, uh, psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, and uh, then there's also lots of other things like, for example, with ayahuasca or maybe with ibogaine, uh, maybe with ketamine. Ketamine is already used, I think, throughout the world, like different hospitals for suicidal depression so uh, but that as well but I think what is certain that we need to do much much more research from different perspectives so not only neuroscience or clinical trials but also understand kind of the components that are important uh, in these processes because psychedelic therapy is really different from uh, let's say the the today's psychiatry view of treating uh, disorders or symptoms where people take drugs like SSRIs or anti-anxiety drugs every day for relief and to be functional. And with psychedelics, the idea is to have a one session, which is integrated, let's say one to two or even three psychedelic sessions, which are integrated with therapy. So there's preparatory sessions, with uh, MAPS and MDMA. I think there's three preparatory sessions before the MDMA session, which is much longer, like I think uh, six to eight hours. And then there are uh, integrative sessions in between these uh, psychedelic sessions. So what I personally like is, is, is this, that uh, it might change how we perceive human suffering, human adaptations of disorders, 
you know that we can't just treat the symptoms. That's like putting a bandage on. And also to appreciate and respect psychotherapy. Yeah, I, I like their integrative way of seeing. That seems to really kind of pose a different model of psychiatry, at least in the way that I would sort of typically think about it. As you described, something like SSRIs for depression or, or lithium for bipolar are used as sort of maintenance tools, which are often combined with therapies, but the idea is that they will be done consistently over a long period of time or perhaps indefinitely. But what you're describing is a model of psychiatry where a problem is confronted in combination with the substance and talk therapies, yeah. but for a, a window of time with the idea that you won't have to return necessarily. Mm. or at least not continuously for indeterminate amounts of time. I think it's a different mindset. Let's say to work with trauma uh, or severe depression, there's no easy way out. You, know, you need to go through the pain and work with the suffering, and that takes time, a lot of time sometimes, and a lot of effort and work. I like this idea that with these substances, we enable people to have these experiences in a safe environment with professionals, who know about these substances because they have gone through the training and uh, maybe they have their own experiences as well and to enable them to touch upon the core issue, the root cause. You know, In some sense, psychotherapy is aiming to that, but it's much, much slower depending on the approach, of course. But I think the, the outcome or the goal is the same. Considering the newness of these approaches um, and the newness of the science, and there's a lot of sort of big promising statistics about instances where you have a pool of treatment-resistant depressed patients who then go through a clinical trial of uh, using psychedelics for depression treatment, and then, you know, at the outcome, 80% of them are no, no longer qualify as a, uh, having a depressed diagnosis. With the amount of promise of hearing things like this, the newness of the science and also the unfortunate cultural baggage of the past with psychedelics. Do you think, do you think there will be a lot of skepticism for, for newcomers? What happened in the 50s and 60s, of course, is a baggage. And the whole political movement, uh, you know, the decisions of putting these substances in the Schedule 1, meaning that there's no uh, medicinal uh, use for them, uh, is still uh, affecting, especially the older generation. I think the new generation is a bit more open-minded and, and thanks to internet and, you know, that we have so much information available easily and, and we can compare this information with actual articles that you can also find online. I think younger people are a bit better informed about these uh, benefits and risks because, I mean, with these substances there are uh, definite risks and there are exclusion uh, criteria for every research design so they are not for everyone and the more research we do better we know about these benefits and risks i hope that with time uh, as we have more uh, evidence not just clinical or neuroscience but also like uh, cohort studies and bigger samples then uh, we can start to say uh, more or less how these things function and, and for what type of people and also i uh, like there there's many documentaries first of all that are uh, released and also more books. Like every month there's a new book on certain psychedelic substance. And uh, that's great because lots of people are doing a lot of work right now to gather this information. And, uh, and also what I love about the psychedelic research scene is that it's not only 
psychiatrists or psychologists uh, or neuroscientists, but it's actually a, a really interesting uh, group of people. I mean, there are sometimes biologists, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, religious studies, consciousness studies, and, and stuff like this. So it's a really holistic way of, of understanding the psyche and the consciousness and, and uh, these kind of things. The spiritual and religious component of it is, is one that's particularly interesting considering the scientific nature of, of the new culture and, and bodies of research that have been, been produced. I've noticed that even watching lectures by prominent researchers, people aren't shying away from the spiritual component, which I think is important because the history of psychedelics has largely been a spiritual history. Even before coming to the West, things like ayahuasca or psilocybin have been spiritual medicines. So it would be a shame to see that lost, but it also creates a new kind of problem for science because science is a materialist field, and especially chemistry, which is at the base of psychiatrics, is very materially oriented. So this is maybe sort of a force to be reckoned with in terms of what that's going to mean and how to understand uh, that history and those essential elements to the psychedelic experience and healing process. Um, how do you be mystical without being mystical? You know, like how, mm. how, how are these things going to be confronted? Maybe that's a bit of an open question. I don't know if you have an idea about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, in the psilocybin studies, they use this term uh, mystical experience. It's been found out to be uh, uh, affecting the outcome positively. So with high doses of psilocybin, uh, people tend to have this um, so-called mystical experience. They have a questionnaire for that, for assessing it. Uh, and, um, what people experience in this kind of state, uh, of course, varies uniquely, but there, I believe, you you kind of uh, get touched upon the root cause of certain issues and how you integrate that experience to your daily life. I think that is the key. Maybe there will happen some sort of new spiritualism, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is not related to any uh, specific uh, religious uh, institutions. However, there are like in the States, also in Europe, I think in the Netherlands, certain uh, religious institutes who use these, like ayahuasca or San Petro. In their, right. That'll yeah. be, of course, in, in, under U.S. federal law, these substances will be protected specifically for religious groups. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Rick Doplin from MAPS was also talking about this for clinics, that, that these clinics in the future, uh, if they uh, will happen, uh, they will not only be for for people who have severe disorders for for that kind of treatment, but it could be also for personal growth uh, and also for religious use. And also the whole research movement now has been um, concentrated on the unique individual experience. So so individual by individual. I mean that uh, what will be interesting is to see if there will be group therapy. You know. And I think uh, Doplin was also talking about this, that for uh, efficacy reasons and because of the costs, I think he has mentioned that one MDMA uh, patient or the treatment for one patient is like 50 grand, you know, in the States. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money. So if we can do small groups of, let's say, six people or, um, who can have these um, uh, treatment sessions together, that will be really interesting from the psychotherapeutic point of view. Mm. It also, of course, this is an extremely complicated question, which I'm not even remotely qualified to find an answer for, but what the future of insurance and these uh, treatments will be is, 
I guess yet to be seen, especially if they offer such a different model of how we typically think about psychiatry. Um, and in many countries, having insurance cover any kind of therapy, like talk therapy, can be quite difficult as it is. Yeah. I don't even know how to speculate about that. That's, that's yeah, yeah. I believe um, MAPS have been uh, talking uh, with insurance companies or at least been interested about this question because I mean what the insurance companies probably want is to be as efficient as possible, you know, and to, to give a treatment that is, uh, the efficacy is high. Let's see, uh, we don't know yet, but uh, if we can get fairly good results, let's say with uh, mild to moderate uh, PTSD clients in a group therapeutic uh, environment, uh, that would be great, of course. And during the years, I mean, since these substances were uh, made illegal, uh, lots of people uh, continued doing underground therapy, you know. And uh, this whole psycholytic therapy, which is more uh, towards the group therapy settings that's been done all over the world. And what is this exactly? Uh, psycholytic therapy, it's called. So it's, it's like with... Uh, uh, from uh, low to moderate doses, so it's not for uh, like a mystical experience type of uh, doses. And uh, personally, I'm also interested in that because I love group therapy. I think it's really beneficial and it's different than individual therapy, of course. Uh, it's a different process, but I think uh, people can learn a lot from the group. So implementing these substances in, in, in that setting would be something I'd be really interested to learn and to be trained in in the future if that's possible. And this is like a, I think about the term microdosing. Does that does that accurately describe? Microdosing is different. I like to my understanding, microdosing, especially if we talk about LSD, the idea is that you don't feel um, the 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 substance at all. You know that makes it kind of complicated because first of all, uh, we are unique individuals, uh, those doses are not universal, I'd say, if we talk about microdosing. And, um, and since we don't feel the effect of the substance, it might be placebo effect. So between the new, very promising research that's uh, been coming out in droves over the last few years and growing very quickly, it seems like that we're, on, we're potentially seeing a new horizon for uh, psychedelics being used in a therapeutic way and a, a new understanding it's like a a second wave for psychedelics and culture except it's very very different than that of the 60s um but because there is the unfortunate past of the the, the psychedelic movement that happened previously which is very reckless reckless and unregulated um and really was a big setback for the science are the the legal barriers which are still in place from that time going to present a problem moving forward um yeah, uh, I wish that that uh, at least when it comes to doing research, uh, those type of changes would be beneficial. I think it's important to do research uh, so we know. And right now, if we think about these substances, they are in the schedule one. So thinking that they don't have any medicinal value, uh, which seems not to be the case. So, so I think hopefully in the future also in Europe, uh, we will uh, have more access uh, in research and that is the only way then finally to enable uh, the access for, for the mainstream or you know, the bigger population. Mm. Is doing it properly. Yeah, definitely. Which is interesting because it's, 
that was also the the initial kind of momentum of the first the first wave of psychedelic research in the 50s and early 60s. Um, but because of how things kind of panned out, it sort of exists in this state of being a new old science. Um, it had to kind of be wiped away for half a century and is now being picked up despite everyone having known about these substances for quite some time. It's like it gets its second chance now. Um, and unfortunately, it, and fortunately, it's it's in the right hands, it seems. Yeah, I believe the research of today, they have learned a lot from the mistakes that were done in the 50s and 60s. The research designs um, today are really well made and, and thought through. Uh, the inclusion inclusion criteria are strict, so the safety is the, the, the most important thing. And uh, so, in some sense, I, I mean, I I I could see uh, the history, you know, what happened in the fifties, sixties, also as a as a gift for today that we can do these things the right way. Right, you know? it's almost like a blessing in disguise that yeah. now the science has to be even more stringent. You just heard a conversation between myself and Miko Karhalati, a Berlin-based Gestalt therapist speaking on the subject of psychedelics and mental health and somewhat beyond. Now I'd like to try something new with you here. What you all listening may not know is that It's Complicated is not just a podcast or a platform, but it's also a small community of therapists here in Berlin. And each month we meet for the purpose of discussing a chosen topic, which more or less always corresponds to the theme of the podcast. This time around, we decided to try something new and record our conversation. And I would like to play just a short segment of that conversation for you now. The clip I'll play for you is from a point in the conversation where we were discussing how psychedelic treatments have been carried out in clinical settings. Just a couple notes. First, the group agreed that all names would be kept anonymous. Second, there is a mention of ACT. That is an acronym for Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Last, if it sounds like there is a baby in the room, it's because there is. But this is where the, the sort of manuals are being developed for, into like how to guide a psychedelic uh, therapeutical session. And I just remembered another talk in Inside Conference from Rosalind Watts, who's a researcher in Imperial College in London, working precisely on the treatment resistant depression. And of course, um, like, underneath of treatment resistant depression often there lies trauma and that's why like, they, they don't really get through yeah. and um, yeah she she um, in this talk she described her, her she systematized the process the, the session and um, she found this uh, image of um, of an oyster being buried in the, in the ground of the sea and sort of she's preparing with act elements like in many sessions before of the before the trip um, patient to dive into the deep sea getting the oyster being like an opening seeing the pearl and diving up with the pearl sort of like it's she describes it very beautifully um, how she prepares the patients to encounter that trauma and she also reports on the case there it's and they are all available actually on YouTube. You can find them. Yeah, like the like my foundation um, published, I think, most of the 
the yeah. talks by now. Yeah. Rosalind yeah. Watts. Rosalind yeah. yeah. And also she like she did a TED talk maybe two or three years ago on mm. suicide and uh, depression. And there's also um, uh, just to show up how much it is sort of a radical departure from psychiatry the way that we think about it. How the sessions are done, um, they're very prepared. You think about going to going to the doctor or psychiatrist and it being kind of a clinical experience, but you can find pictures online of the the rooms where these critical clinical trials are done, and they really kind of go over the top to make them like extremely comfortable. You know, there's like, blankets everywhere, and they have music that's been specifically composed for that experience only. Uh, like they really go all the way, and then and, and, and the researchers will talk about it as well to provide an experience that feels as safe so you can be in a room for eight plus hours and you know there's nothing there's nothing dangerous that's threatening but, but doesn't it also depend on the like um, the personal abilities for observation I mean you can prepare a lot but I'm not sure if you can develop those abilities just within a couple of preparing sessions you know if someone maybe is at a point having a personality structure that just not serves integrating this experience it could um, maybe <laughs> have some dangers I mean like I, I, I guess that's what is so yeah, so positive and, and, and surprising to many about about the results of this of these of these studies that that that, that ability that we suppose not all people have. That's the type of ability that that uh, is facilitated through uh, the psychedelic experience. Like this, yeah. Like the the, the ability to integrate and 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 the follow-up studies <laughs> show uh, that like that actually that the, uh, the symptom reductions uh, stay. Mm -hmm. So it's something happens during the session. Of course, with the preparations and the integration of uh, the sessions, but the, the effects last. Mm -hmm. So it's some, we don't know, of course, mm -hmm. why. No one knows mm -hmm. why, what happens really, because uh, it's a unique experience and you know, unique background, unique therapy. But but they do last, like uh, after six months, one year, two years, and that's amazing. With with only one session of psilocybin. It's complicated as a web directory, making it extra simple for you to find the right therapist. No matter what kind of therapy you are looking for, It's Complicated offers a safe space to connect you with a practitioner. Pay us a visit online today at complicated.life. And as I mentioned before, if you like the content that you get in the podcast, you can find more interesting and insightful information on our blog at blog.complicated.life. I'm Reese Cox. This is the It's Complicated podcast. Thank you for listening.